And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And last week I received a very disturbing email from Noel Hanrahan, who is the founder and director of Prison Radio and is widely known as the outside advocate, one of many, but a leading outside advocate for Mumia Abu-Jamal. This email was about his health and his deteriorating health in prison. We are joined by Noel Hanrahan, who is indeed the founder and director of Prison Radio, also private investigator and attorney. So thank you for being with us, Noel. A disturbing email. Can you bring us up to date, please, on the medical condition and perhaps an update as well on the ongoing litigation, uh, the attempts to have Mumia freed from prison? I've been advocating, and many people across the world have been advocating for now 42 years for Mumia Abu-Jamal, a journalist who is based in Philadelphia, who is incarcerated at SCAI Mahanoy in Pennsylvania doing life to be free. We believe that his case should be reexamined, that there is evidence of innocence. And now that he's been in 42 years, he went in when he's 26, he's approaching 70, he'll be 70 in April, He's facing serious health complications. Now, prison is no place for anyone to get adequate care. Um, the food and the diet are abysmal. The conditions promote um, health issues and problems. There's a lot of stress and violence. So we really are in a situation right now where someone that we believe should be free someone that is a public intellectual, that has written 13 books, that is finishing his PhD thesis at UC Santa Cruz, that really has been an icon around the world. If you Google his name or if you ask people, you'll find that Mumia really is one of the intellectual giants that is in the pantheon in America as someone who is committed to telling the truth and resisting. Now, in terms of his health, he had double bypass surgery almost three years ago, and they have prevented him from having cardiac rehab care, which is an adequate diet and exercise, literally preventing him from recovering from something that is you can recover from. Also, he had had hepatitis C in prison, and we did a third circuit federal appeal for a preliminary injunction and received it, which I know, as you know, Bill, it's really difficult to get a federal court to intercede in a prison case and get a preliminary injunction. And we did that. We made the Department of Corrections in Pennsylvania administer the hepatitis C fast-acting antiviral drug cure to Mumia Abu-Jamal. And that was the first preliminary injunction that was issued across the country which meant that it rolled out and that other prisoners were able to access that precedent to get the treatment, a cure. You know, the Eighth Amendment is something that prisoners use to say that they need the same health care as people outside. And it's a public health imperative to treat people for hepatitis C. As many of you know, it's infectious. You often don't know you have it. When it becomes chronic, it's deadly. And if there's a cure, you have to have it. And it was, you know, the the capitalist companies that were controlling the rollout and the, the very high cost. It was Gilead that bought it from Sobafure, meaning that they had bought the drug 
and then they were charging $80,000 for the treatment, one pill a day for like 13 days. So, you know, that problem in that they wanted to maximize their income was uh, really hitting the poorest hard and those people in prison hard as well. Mumia Abu-Jamal is often referred to as a political prisoner. He was convicted of a murder. Um, He has been in prison now for some 42 years. The uh, claims of innocence have never been fully addressed in my judgment. Um, Do you consider him a political prisoner? It's a very interesting question and one I think that's important for everyone to grapple with. Yes, there are political prisoners in the United States, people who are targeted by the state, who are charged with things like seditious conspiracy, the Puerto Rican independence movements, for instance. But people, you know, I think it's very clear that the U.S. government was afraid of the Malcolms, the Martins, and the Mumias. They actually had programs to suppress the Uh, self-determination of whole groups of people of color. And the COINTELPRO papers and the FBI exposure, you know, if you really do the research, if you look into it, there is a concerted effort by the U.S. government. And we can feel it. Like, they target cop city activists. They, you know, shot Tartuga. (laughs) They car-bombed Judy Berry or covered it up afterwards. Like, there is a level of political repression against... um, social movements and activists that is transparent. So yes, I believe Mumia Abu-Jamal is a prototypical political prisoner. But interesting question. I think Mumia himself said very recently, I heard it yesterday, all poor people who are in prison are there for a political construct. Like this is a construct. Mass incarceration as it's constructed in the United States one in 99 are currently in prison. That's people. One in three black men will do prison time. I mean, the level of incarceration is a construct that serves something. You can figure it out. You know, you can think about it, but it serves the way in which the culture is set up. Is it a capitalist Braceros program for people who deserve bread and work, you know, um, in the inner cities? Like, is it because they take people out of the inner city and they put them in rural places and then they transfer their votes? Like, you might think I'm kidding, but they transfer the votes of prisoners from the inner city to the county in which they are incarcerated, often a rural county, often a white county. And then when they're released, they keep the representation. They have more Congress people in Greene County, Pennsylvania, than they do in Philadelphia because they have transferred these representational votes. So I'm telling you, it's like they commodify everything. It's a huge economic boom. Noelle Hanrahan, you are the founder of Prison Radio. I believe that Mumia Abu-Jamal was either your first or one of your very first correspondents from inside. Tell us about how Prison Radio works, and then I would like to share, have you share uh, a, re- a relatively recent uh, recording uh, of Ab- uh, of Mumia's uh, that we can share here in just a moment. But for our listeners who don't know, what is prison radio? I was a investigative journalist at KPFA Radio in Berkeley, California, and from KPFA in Berkeley, you can almost literally see San Quentin and Marin because they're right across the water if you stand on top of the building. 
And we were covering the execution in 1992 of Robert Alton Harris. First execution in California in 25 years. It was rolling back, bringing back executions, the death penalty. Now, as an investigative journalist, as a journalist, as a radio person, you want to hear from the first person. So I was looking for a person in prison who was on death row who could talk about this experience because that's the most important way to reach people is to connect real people with the real first person journalism. And I had a really hard time because people on the row didn't want to poke their heads up because they would be the next person executed. And that was San Quentin. There was like 600 guys out there. So I heard a scratchy tape of Mumia Abu-Jamal hadn't heard of him, didn't really know much about him. I'd heard a little bit about him in some political circles from the political prisoners, um, but I didn't know him well. I went to Huntington State Prison in central Pennsylvania. I put a microphone in front of him and I went, whoa, this guy is James Earl Jones in a box. Like this guy is super talented. And he actually was. He was trained at black radio stations in Philly he was hired by WHYY and he was on the track to becoming the next Bill Bradley, like amazingly amazing uh, intellect and radio journalist. He, he was, yeah, he was definitely going to be a host of NPR and uh, he was working for WHYY when this incident happened on the streets of Philadelphia on December 9th, 1981. He was shot, officer Daniel Faulkner was shot and killed and the rest is 42 years of really uh, an extreme cover-up, I would say. And we'll get in, after you hear him talk, we'll get into the cover-up, the new, the latest legal uh, shenanigans of the district attorneys and the prosecutors. Okay. This is from Inside Prison. You're going to hear some background noise because when Noah Hanrahan records her correspondence, her prison correspondence, well, they have to use the phone in prison. Is that right, Noel? Yes, most of them. I mean, journalists can take equipment in, but it is a trek. And so most will have some background prison noise. Let's hear a relatively recent report from inside the prison from Amia Abu-Jamal. The quest for abolition. How do we arrive at this place we call abolition? What are the roads to such a destination? We arrive from the almost lost lessons of history shaped by generations of ancestors who struggled their whole lives for that rare breath of freedom and yearned with all their hearts that we, their project, would one day breathe free air. For abolition stems from the long, hard struggle against slavery. For abolition meant the destruction of that system and the beginning of freedom. For a brief moment in time, freedom dawned over the land, but it was a mirage, a lie usurped by the greater lie of white supremacy, which plunged people into the darkness of terror and death, in fact, slavery by another name. Those unholy origins leads to the specter of mass incarceration of the greatest incarceration of juveniles in global history into the current system of imprisonment, what activists rightly call DBI, death by incarceration, or lifeless sentences of life 
forever. These are the twin faces of Janus, the same face reflected into its illusion of two. In 2003, Dr. Angela Y. Davis wrote, Is the Prison Obsolete? Published by Seven Stories Press. It was a book before its time, in that it really introduced readers to the notion of prison abolition. She showed how history featured the abolition of slavery, the convict lease system, and racial segregation. In another book, titled Abolition Democracy, Davis explains tomorrow's struggles for free and true social change, as noted by a philosopher named Eduardo Mandieta, who penned the book's introduction, writing these words. For authentic democracy to emerge, Davis argues, abolition democracy must be enacted. The abolition of institutions that advance the domination of any one group over any other. Abolition democracy, then, is the democracy that is to come, the democracy in American history. Those that opposed slavery, lynching, and segregation. The prison system, a relic of that same cruel past, was the next logical step. Davis argued that the systems of white supremacy, of ruthless capitalism and labor exploitation, led to the monster now before us, mass incarceration, in the millions. As a new generation has emerged, her insights are being studied, referenced, and actualized in ideas that confront the weighty shadow of the penitentiary. Another prison abolitionist and noted scholar, Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore stated, abolition requires we change one thing, which is everything. The presence and threat of prison sits like an incubus over the soul of society. It doesn't create, it doesn't treat, it doesn't help, it feeds, it harms, it cripples, and yes, it kills. It is a creation of state cruelty and carnage. It is the institutionalization of meanness, plain and simple, and movements, only social movements, can pull it from the throne of skulls. Now is the time. With love, not fear, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. We will continue our conversation with the founder of Prison Radio, attorney Noel Hanrahan, right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Noel Hanrahan, attorney and private investigator, Noel Hanrahan, and founder of Prison Radio, founder and director of Prison Radio. You record uh, these uh, monologues from uh, persons who are locked up inside the razor wire. How many different uh, persons do you give 
this opportunity to? How many correspondents, prison radio correspondents, are there in the United States, and how many prisons are they in? Right now, we have 47 correspondents who are active, and they're from approximately 40 different prisons, institutions all over the country, Michigan, Texas, California. And over the course of the last three decades, we've had hundreds of correspondents. And the idea was that media needs to hear from people inside prison, that their agency, their independence, their self-determination is really crucial in the public debate and dialogue. If we're going to spend more money on prisons than preschools, which we do, and if we're going to treat addiction through imprisonment, we need to really include the people at the point of the sword and people that their families and them in that debate and dialogue. We really need to treat them as human beings and not just as um, commodities, really. What do you make and what do your correspondents make of the fact that while during COVID, the prison population in the United States decreased, there has been this resurgence, more people being sent to prison and jails uh, recently than there have in recent years. Can you give us your perspective on that? You know, I think that it's used in this culture as a way to approach or solve problems, um, but it's never worked. You know, like the culture, this culture, if you really look at it, is criminogenic, it creates crime. No other culture on the whole planet does this. Like I studied at University of um, Boston, I got a master's in criminal justice because I wanted to learn or understand why it's this way. And I was disappointed because we weren't studying any other cultures. Like nobody does it this way. This is like extreme to organize your society in a way that um, treats poverty. Poverty is a driving reality in people and being in prison. And if you treat it through imprisoning people, if you treat mental health through imprisoning people, you're going to end up with what we have, which is extremely damaging to the culture. It's destroying people's families, and it is very likely an extension of slavery and the new Jim Crow. Of, you know, it is a way in which to this culture tries to minimize the voting participation and the self-determination of vast swaths of African-Americans, literally, not figuratively, literally. Do you see any cessation of this uh, policy, this nationwide policy? I, I have been very inspired in the last decade by what's happening in Pennsylvania on the ground. And I'm, I know it's happening in your community too, because I can feel it and I can see it with Lois Ahern's work and other people's work in Western Mass. I can see that work even here. But in Pennsylvania, I can talk about it more specifically, the fact that people's families are building communities and building power with the Abolitionist Law Center, the Amistad Law Project, the Human Rights Campaign, Death by Coalition, Death by Incarceration Coalition, CADBE, they are actually electing district attorneys, Larry Kressner. They're electing judges. They are suing counties. They are passing legislation that restricts solitary confinement. There's a, a massive movement 
critical resistance nationally, curve in California, wrap in New York. We are building power. The culture, the media may never privilege the fact that we're winning, but we are winning. We are changing what the narrative is and we're changing how they're determining. We're stopping the building of new jails. We're stopping the building of new prisons. We may have fall off, like we may lose one or two battles, but we are actually changing what politicians um, think is possible. Salim Holbrook, the executive director of the Abolition Law Center, was put on Josh Shapiro, <laughs> our governor's transition team. This guy really wants to be president, okay? So he's paying attention. Our city council in Philadelphia elected two abolitionists from the Working Families Party. That is power. Yeah, it is interesting to me that you mentioned the uh, abolitionist movement uh, here in Western Massachusetts. And of course, the Prison Policy Initiative, which was founded by Peter Wagner in East Hampton, is a really strong and effective uh, law reform organization. You mentioned Lois Ahrens who is the founder and executive director of the Real Cost of Prison Project here in Northampton as well. And I assume that these kinds of efforts that are both statewide and in local municipalities are something that are and is reflected uh, in, in counties and communities across the country that have said, no, enough already with this prison monolith, uh, not in my name. And it's interesting to me to hear from you, Noel Hanrahan, you actually are optimistic since I tend to look at this and say still over 2 million people, the highest percentage of people of a country locked up of any country in the world, that's the United States, and yet you're optimistic. You know, I think that major changes happen and it builds, but it builds from the grassroots and the ground up. Like we didn't anticipate, many of us, that the Berlin wall would fall. You know, there are massive changes that happen quickly and we just have to be ready for them. But I can feel the work building in it. Um, we also have, I think, a judicial system, a court system, a police, very elaborate police apparatus that is very invested in what is happening now. We have a corrections industry that is very invested in it. And so they, um, literally when they get hold of our children they hang on for dear life like they they but we have to challenge that um and we have to make sure that we resist that but those forces are very entrenched and they have a lot of money um, and that can be very difficult but there's a tie there's a wave there's like the great migration from the south there's like the warmth of other suns things will change and i can feel it they are changing I would just like to point out uh, that up here in Massachusetts, I, I am buzzed, by the way, um, Nicole, we have a uh, Massachusetts Correctional Institution at uh, Concord, which was historically housed so many inmates. It is now slated to close. Um, also, Framingham, which is a dreadful facility for women prisoners, is uh, on the closing list as well. So we, there are some uh, strides being made. And MCI Walpole, uh, renamed Cedar Junction, because if you take a name like Walpole and you call it Cedar Junction, that's what some people call prison reform because it's so bucolic sounding and pleasant. You know, I have two things about that. 
they call the prison phone system smart communications. And they built a supermax that Mumia was in on death row and they changed the driveway. And when they changed the driveway, they renamed the driveway of the road, the 250 yard road to 175 Progress Drive. I just wanna put in a plug also for the Rosenberg Fund for Children. If there are people within your listening area who do not know of that organization, they need to Google it, they need to find it, they need to go visit it because that, getting that information will show you and tell you how political imprisonment and how repression works. And it's one of the best organizations I know. And by way of disclosure, I've been on the board of directors since the inception. Noel Hanrahan is the founder and director of Prison Radio. Thank you for coming and sharing with us today. Anything that we can do as people to help Mumia in his present condition and his lack of medical care? Is there anything for us to Go do? Go to Prison Radio. Join our e-blast list. We're developing a series of actions, postcard campaigns, pressure works, activism works. So join us, www.prisonradio.org. Sign up on the email list and you'll get the info. Noel Hanrahan, thank you so very much. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down to San Antonio This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg